If you have your Bible, hopefully you can open it up to Psalm 11. I think it's uh, been a pretty cool thing that God would have us in the Psalms last summer, and then he has us in the Psalms again, um, in Psalm 9, 10, and 11. And going forward, uh, we actually see these are lament Psalms, uh, Psalms helping us wrestle through trial and pain and suffering. And I don't know uh, about you, but as I've reflected on just where God has us in the Psalms, um, that he would have us in this place as we're going through some things in our life that we've never gone through before, right? I think most of us can relate, like we've gone through maybe some disobedience, maybe we've gone through some suffering in our lives, but very few of us, if not any of us, have gone through what we're going through right now. And so I think in God's providence and his provision, he has us in these Psalms for a very particular reason. And I'm super thankful that God in his provision would actually lead us through his word and knowing that you're not alone, that I have truth for you, and I want to speak that over you. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about actually wrestling through the struggles of life, and actually one of the marks of maturity is actually saying, God, in my head, I'm wrestling through this, God, in my heart, I'm wrestling through this, and actually to be able to open our hands and say, God, this struggle that I'm going through, I want to invite you into that. And he showed, and what he talked about was, it's actually a mark of maturity to wrestle through that and to be able to present that to the Lord and allow the Lord to meet you in that place. Like a medicine and salve covers over an ailment, the Lord wants to meet us and provide for us. Two questions I want to bring out this morning that I believe that the Lord helps us walk through, and they are, if you're taking notes, uh, the first one is, what can we do during trial? What can we do during trial? And the second one is, what does the Lord do during trial? What is the Lord doing during trial? And so there's four things I want to point out that the Lord does, but we're not going to get to that. You've got to wait in anticipation, right? On November 8th, 2008, my wife and I got married. It was a great day. Um, Speaking of trial, we were supposed to get married the week before on All Saints Day because we're saints, and okay, I'm not going to go down that road, but we wanted to celebrate, um, and her, one of her good friends got married, and so we got married on November 8th, and lo and behold, there was a snowstorm that hit. Uh, thankfully, our friends and family came, and everybody just kind of hunkered down, celebrated. It was, a, it was a great weekend. Well, what I didn't know is two months after we got married, I would actually get sick. Um, it was a couple-week process, but um, I felt kind of lethargic. I was tired, um, and I come to discover there was an internal bleeding happening on the inside. I remember being admitted to the hospital and laying in my hospital bed, and my wife is crying, and I'm trying to wrestle through the emotions of my life. I know that God is with me, but I'm struggling to believe, like, God, where what it, where is this going? Where, where are you taking me? So I'm in trial in the midst of it. And I remember uh, the doctor saying, hey, there's too much inflammation going on in your body. We're going to have to start you on a narcotic. And so I remember thinking, well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, I guess that's what happens when you have too much going on internally. And so I remember after two days laying there and this narcotic would wake me up at night, my mind would be spinning and I'd be wrestling through, like, God, what if, what if I die? We've only been married, like, two months. Are you gonna, do you have a man for my wife? I'm thankful that you provided this hardship for me because I have you as my rock 
to lean on, but what's going to happen for my wife? It's like the worst case scenario, right? As a newlywed, you're thinking, man, I got hopefully many years to come. In that circumstance, I remember wrestling with the Lord, and he comes and meets with me so intimately that he's with me and for me and he encourages me. And so in the midst of that trial, I knew that God was with me, but I was struggling to see, God, what are you teaching me? What is my move in this? So I want to ask you that question. If you've gone through trial, what do you do during trial? Notice in verses 1 through 3, the first few words that David says, he says, in the Lord I take refuge. So I think many of us, we run to that. We know that at a cognitive level. We know that the Lord is our refuge. But the truth of the matter is, we have all kinds of different voices, all kinds of different advisors, all kinds of different thoughts that maybe the Lord is my refuge, but what if I could run to the Lord and there's some things that I need to do? And so if you notice in the next two and a half verses or so, David wrestles with those real steps that he could take. His advisors tell him, he says, they say, flee like a bird to the mountains. For the wicked, they bend their bow and they're fitting their arrows to the string. To shoot in the dark and the upright in heart, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So you can get this picture that David is actually having some friends or advisors with him. They're in the throne room. And they're wrestling through what to do. The doors are locked. There's enemies either have infiltrated the city. Either David is, we don't know really the circumstances if David's running from Saul or if Absalom is coming or if there's actual people in the city because that's kind of what happens uh, when you're a king and people are jealous for your kingdom. They infiltrate the city to overthrow you as king. And so they're in the throne room wrestling through What decisions do we have to make at this point in time? What do we do during trial? And so David says, the Lord is my refuge, but then he has people around him that are saying, hey, um, remember that one time um, we ran to the mountains and it was a safe place. So how about this? How about maybe a good piece of advice is that you leave the throne room, give them the throne, then you will be safe and we can go Find a a refuge for you and we'll go with you. And so David wrestles through that and the implications of that. And what he says is that in verse uh, 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so David's actually thinking about the ramifications of his choices. If he leaves the throne, there are wicked people that will come in. They will take the throne and the city will be in chaos. If he leaves the throne, David's not only thinking about himself, but what about the people that God has given me in this city to lead, to love, and to serve? So the the word foundations in verse 3 actually doesn't mean the foundations of a building. What David's really getting at is if he leaves the city, all socio and economic and just laws that are ruling this city will be overthrown with wickedness. Goodness and godliness will be replaced with unjust chaos and lawlessness. 
And so David is wrestling at a real deep level. If I make this choice, it doesn't just affect me, but it affects hundreds of people around me. So for example, I want to just give you a couple examples. Um, so in our land, so we talk about America, right? In our land, one of the, uh, the, the laws that actually hold a little bit of the chaos at bay, if you will, is can you steal a car? Now, some of these are going to be rhetorical, and you're like, Kyle, that's common sense. You can't steal a car, which, by the way, Amaya, congrats on your first car, right? So the lay of the land is that we can't steal a car. It's not good. How do we know that? It's common sense because we live in a just society, right? Number two, if you're a student in the room and your parents aren't looking at you, or maybe you're in a school setting, um, is it okay to cheat on a test? No, right? Obviously, no, uh, that's not good. You can get thrown out. You can have to take that class again. It's not good, right? Or maybe a little bit closer to home, if you are in the process of doing your taxes, and I know if I ask people in this room, how many of you are excited about taxes? All of you would raise your hand. But how many of you, as you go through that tax process and you get to the end and you're wrestling through, should I put this income on there? Well, there's no trail of it. Can we lie a little bit on our taxes? The truth is no. Like we, we live in a land of just cause. And so David is wrestling through that. And what David is saying is that when good Godly men and women leave their places of influence for the good of other people, wickedness and chaos will pursue. In James chapter 4, he invites us into a little bit more of this chaos. And he said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you will ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself to be an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What James and David are saying is, until we get to a place of humility, until we get to a place of trying to figure things out on our own, we will never actually rest and find our refuge in the Lord. And so here's what James is wrestling through, is, is our hearts are corrupt. And if we, find, if we try to find avenues to circumvent the process, do we truly trust in God? One of our neighbors just got a new dog, and I don't know, really know what the breed is, uh, but our kids call it the Emmett dog, okay? And so if you're walking in the street, um, we're walking down the street, Emmett dog stays in his, his yard, but if somebody is on a scooter or a trike or a bicycle, 
Emmett dog likes to chase them. And inevitably, my kids love to ride the scooter and the trike and the bike. And so we're walking down uh, the, the street, and Emmett dog comes out, um, and our kids run to us. Well, in one particular circumstance, my son Lincoln, he is on his trike, and he's riding towards the end of the driveway, and Emmett dog is a couple yards away. And so Emmett dog sees my son Lincoln, and you can tell what's going to happen at this point, right? Emmett dog gets excited. He starts running at Lincoln. Lincoln, I don't know, does a ninja move and kicks his trike to the side, jumps off, and he's just, I don't know if you can see this picture, he's barreling down the driveway. And he's like, part of it's like fear, part of it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. And he's running down the driveway, and he gets up to the door, and I'm seeing him coming. So I open the door, and immediately it's like, bam, he hits me on the leg, and there's security. There's shelter, and there's refuge. In the same way, I believe God's asking us to find our refuge in him. Now, I don't know if you're wrestling with fear this morning, like my son. I don't know if you're wrestling through some of the decisions that you have to make in the coming months with schooling and those types of things. But I think as the Lord helps to refine us in this process that we call life, I think sometimes we get in the mode of if we don't know something, we run to our refuge of our phone. We run to the refuge of a friend. We run to the refuge of fill in the blank. And the beautiful thing that I love with children is they don't think about it. They just know where their refuge is. And so it's my prayer that this morning is that as we go through trial, that our knee-jerk reaction wouldn't be to the things of this world, but our, our reaction would be to run to the Lord because that is the place where we find true refuge. That is the place where we find true shelter, true hope, and true comfort. Now, I don't know, maybe you've grown up like me where, um, and I'll just throw myself under the bus at this point, uh, maybe you're a little bit emotionally constipated where the emotions just don't come out very well, right? You're, you're wrestling through life and you might be able to kind of process a little bit, but you're not able to actually share your heart, actually lay it out before you. Maybe you wrestle to actually just be transparent. Or maybe, maybe you've grown up in a circumstance where emotions have been kind of suppressed to a point where you just don't even know how you're feeling at that point. So I don't know your context, but here's what David says. In his wrestle, I find refuge in the Lord. David finds refuge in the Lord because that's the only place where he truly feels safe. That's the only place that doesn't actually give him a little bit of comfort, but then in the long term leaves him wanting more. So if you're dealing with sin this morning, I want to encourage you to run from that sin and run to the Lord. If you're dealing with depression, I'll just be honest again, uh, part of being at home and wrestling with working at home is just not actually seeing many people. I've been super thankful to be home with my family and to eat lunch and those types of things. But there are some days where I just struggle. I struggle with not having somebody else to talk to you about work. Now, granted, I I love my wife and kids. Sometimes the monotony of life, it just kind of gets to you. So if you're wrestling through depression this morning in this isolation, I want to encourage you, find your refuge in the Lord. 
Maybe you're wrestling through school like Pastor Paul just talked about. A lot of governors just actually came out and said, hey, here's kind of the plan that we're hoping for in our city. And you're a little bit wrestling through that. You don't know what the right steps are. You don't know if you should wear a mask to the store. You don't know if, how you should live your life in this season. I want to encourage you to find your refuge in the Lord. Maybe you've had some conversations with friends or family uh, related to what's going on in the world. Maybe you don't know how to really support America in this season, and there's lots of different things going on in the world related to white supremacy and Black Lives Matter. And, and so sometimes we actually run from some of those conversations because A, we're too scared, or B, we just don't know what to say, and we don't want to say the wrong thing. But as Christians, I want to encourage you, if these things in our world are actually causing you uh, stress and chaos on the inside, I want to encourage you to find your refuge in the Lord. So like my son and like many children, find their refuge in their parents. I want to encourage you to find your refuge in the Lord, for it's the only place that will find shelter and comfort and hope. The second question I want to dive into this morning is, how does the Lord, what does the Lord do in trial? So we can run to the Lord. God gives us that strength to do that, but what does the Lord do? Is he just passive? Is he doing nothing? And the four things I want to point out this morning is the Lord rules, the Lord tests, the Lord judges, and the Lord reveals. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. I know for many of you, I think for myself, if I were to say, um, I think you believe that you are a better governor or leader than God. I think many of you would say, Kyle, A, I don't believe that, and B, why would you ever think that? That's very accusatory of you. And the truth of the matter is, is whenever we lean into anxiety and stress and worry, what we're really saying is, God, the way that you're governing, the way that you're in control, I'm really struggling to believe that. And so I want to do as much as I can to take control of the situation because I just, I just don't know if what you're doing is going to be good for me. So Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. So he's even worried about our clothes. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour in the lifespan to your life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about himself, about itself. Here's what Jesus is really saying. 
I rule and I reign. If I can take care of the open fields and the open meadows, I can take care of whatever is going on in your soul. If I can clothe the lilies of the open meadow with splendor and beauty, and if people would go to places like the Grand Canyon or the ocean and be filled with awe and wonder, I can take care of the trials and the circumstances in your world. Another scripture says that if Jesus builds his church, the gates of hell will not prevail. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel kind of overwhelmed by life circumstances, I want to remind you that the Lord is ruling and he's reigning and he knows. Number two, the Lord tests. Notice in verse five, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Verse four, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes and his eyelids test the children of men. So if you've ever been playing cards with somebody, uh, what's the number one goal when you're playing cards? You try to win, right? For my wife, it's to have fun, and I, I'm trying to get there. Uh, but in cards, you try to hold your cards close to you, right? So you try to hold your cards close so that nobody sees them. And so what happens is, is that when the Lord tests, it's almost like you're holding your cards and basically you expose them. Now, why would you do that, right? You would lose the game. But in this circumstance, as the Lord tests, whether you want to hold your cards close, the Lord sees them anyways. Like the Lord sees your heart. The Lord knows your motives. The Lord knows what's going on internally. The Lord knows if your motives are good, right, just, and pure. Or if you're just saying something, but on the inside, it's quite a different story. And so what David is saying is that in and through trials, the Lord is not only just testing the, the ones that are not for him, but he's also testing the ones who are righteous. So you might say, Kyle, that makes kind of, it sounds kind of crazy, right? But here's what the Lord is after. The Lord isn't bringing us through trials and tests so that at the end he's like, oh my goodness, I had no idea that you were going to make that choice or I had no idea that you were going to make that decision. No, that's, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is, is he's exposing our cards in that trial and in that test and we actually see our hearts for what they are. And so my hope is that when you see that, it doesn't actually make you push away from God, but it actually causes you to see that and to say, my heart has been wicked. Lord, I turn back to you in this trial. I want to illustrate this um, in six different case studies from the Old Testament. So if you, if you are quick with your Bible, you can go there with me. I should have a list of them up on the screen. So here we go. Here's some of the case study tests in the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2. We have this case study of Adam and Eve in the garden. So Adam and Eve are in the garden, and, and the Lord says, Here's the tree of life, and here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in the wrestle of the garden, uh, the serpent comes in, and he says, does God really love you? Did God really say that? And so in the wrestle, Adam and Eve are wrestling through that. Adam is a little bit passive in the circumstance, and so Eve is left to wrestle through this on her own. And she falls into temptation. She falls into disobedience and sin, and the first test is failed. 
God sends them out of the garden because they can't live there in perfection. But he says, I'm coming after you. I have a plan for you. Even in your sin and rebellion, I'm coming. Case study number two is Genesis chapter four. The test is Cain and Abel. So Cain and Abel bring to the Lord their offering. And we know from the scriptures that Cain actually brings some good fruit. Like some of you in this room really like fruit. And so that would actually be a good offering to receive. But what Abel does is he actually brings the best of the best of the best of his flock. And so the test there is of the heart. Cain brings something good to the Lord, but his heart isn't in the right place. Abel actually brings the best of the best of the best of his flock and says, this is for you because you're worthy and this is for you, Lord. Case study number three is in Genesis 6 and 7. The Lord actually tests and sees the wickedness of man in the world. The Bible actually says that God was sad. He was remorseful because there was so much wickedness that his plan was to actually wipe out the human race. But he sees Noah and he sees his faithfulness and he he says, Noah, would you build this boat and I'm going to provide a way to save you. And so Noah has a choice. It hasn't rained forever. Would Noah build this boat? And he builds it and God saves him. Test number five, Genesis 11. God tests the hearts of men and women at the Tower of Babel. They're trying to build this tower and the Bible actually says, that they, the people actually say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower where, where its top goes to heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we disperse over the face of the earth. And the very thing that the people feared, actually God comes down and does. He actually confuses their language and sends them all over the earth. Genesis 15, and this is our, we got two more. So Genesis 15, Abram and Sarai. They're wrestling through their, Sarai is barren, and what God says is, I'm going to provide you a son. And so as they wait for a while, they don't have a child, and Sarai says, hey, what if, what if you take Hagar and have a baby with her? Maybe that's the way that God would provide a son for us, and, and we'd have descendants as numerous as the stars. And so what we see and we, what reveals their heart is actually they don't trust God, They take the matters into their own hands. God says, even in your disobedience, I'm still going to provide a way. The last one we're going to look at this morning is from Genesis 37, and it's a story of Joseph. I think many of you who have read that story, we see the test of Joseph. Actually, Joseph has these dreams, and instead of, of, of actually delighting in them and how God is at work, he actually starts boasting and telling his brothers, like, hey, guys, you're going to worship me someday. And the brothers just get fed up with it. They're just tired of it, right? And so they, they actually hurt him. They put him in a pit. They sell him. And then eventually Joseph gets to, to Egypt and he's in the second in command in Egypt. And all of that time, the Lord was with Joseph in his trial. And here's what Joseph says, as you, you meant evil against me, but the Lord meant it for good. Do you hear that? The wickedness that was happening to Joseph, he actually sees that God's plan of deliverance was in and through that trial. And it was to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
There are hundreds of other examples of tests in the Bible. And I believe that God brings us through these tests not because he just wants our, our minds to be in the right place. I don't believe that. It's just because he wants part of our heart to be in the right place. But he, he, it's because God brings us through these trials because he wants you. He wants all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. God wants you. He wants your devotion. He wants your love. He wants your passions. He wants your drive. He wants your compassion. And he wants your worship. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord in this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, so this is, this is actually the reality of Paul engaging God, lamenting with God and saying, God, take this trial away from me. And here's what the Lord says to him. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so as, as Paul is in his weakest point, as he's wrestling and saying, God, take this away from me, the Lord's answer is, my grace is sufficient. Paul wants this test, this trial to leave him. And here's what, here's what changes and transforms in Paul's heart. Instead of being bitter towards God and saying, God, you don't have your right mind in place to be good for me at this point. Here's what he says. He humbles himself and he says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, for this truth holds true for us today. For when I am weak, I am strong. The Lord doesn't test us because he doesn't love us. The Lord brings us through trial because he wants you. Number three, the Lord judges. Verse six, let him rain coals on the wicked and fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So in trial, this is what the third thing that the Lord does, he judges. The truth of the matter is, is David's actually reflecting on a circumstance which was pretty visually scary. There was a city called Sodom and Gomorrah. They were next to each other, and there was sin that was running rampant. And the Lord sees this city, and there was Lot and his wife, and they were actually interceding on behalf of this city. And Lot begs the Lord, would you save this city? And so they go through the city, and they find that there's wickedness running rampant. And so the Lord just doesn't say, well, I know there's sin. I guess I'm going to turn away from that. The Lord takes it seriously and he rains down sulfur and fire and a scorching wind takes out that city. And the Lord actually says, when you leave this city, don't turn around and look at it for I am the Lord. And Lot's wife turns around and she's punished by that by turning into a pillar of salt. And, Saul, and Lot actually obeys the Lord and he deals with the repercussions of that disobedience. He loses his wife. And the Lord judges. Now I'm so thankful that David doesn't just reveal that part of God's character. That God judges sin. And he doesn't just say, well, have a nice day. He actually leaves us with God judges. But yet there's hope in that judgment. 
And this leads me to the last point that we're going to look at today. The Lord reveals himself. So in our trial, in our tribulation, the Lord reveals himself. Verse 7, the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. In the Old Testament, we see that many of the people would come to God and there was an intercessor. There was somebody that would actually have to go on behalf of them. And so people would come to the high priest in the temple and that was the place of worship. And they would offer a sacrifice to the Lord and the priest would make sacrifice atoning for his sins. And then the priest would actually make a sacrifice atoning for the people's sins. And then he would go inside to the Holy of Holies where the Lord's presence was and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and God's mercy and grace would be given to the people. And so it's interesting that David would actually see, behold, that we actually can behold his face. Because in the Old Testament, that just wasn't true. I mean, even the Lord led his people in the wilderness through a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. They actually didn't even get to see God. Even Moses, when he would go up on the mountain, he would see God, but it would only be his backside, his train. And so when Moses would get the Ten Commandments, he'd walk down from the mountain. His face would be glowing by just seeing the peripheral of God or the backside of God. And the people were terrified. His face was glowing. You've been with the Lord. And they didn't want to look at him. So actually Moses had to put a veil over his face. So how could David actually say that the upright shall behold his face? There is no way to get into the Holy of Holies. There had to be an atoning sacrifice. And here's what David points to. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see Jesus standing in the temple. And there were people selling things. There was commerce going on. And Jesus walks in and he starts flipping over tables. And the Pharisees come in and they say, how dare you? What authority do you have to overthrow these tables? And Jesus says, tear this place down and in three days I will rebuild it. How do we see the face of God? Well, what David is foreshadowing is that Jesus was going to die. And three days later, he was going to rise. And in his body, he was going to atone for the sins of the world. When he went to the cross, the veil was torn. The temple was shattered. And Jesus said, I am the place of worship. You don't need to go to the temple anymore. You don't need to have an intercessor that goes into the Holy of Holies. I am that intercessor. I am the one that's going to provide a way to see and behold God's face. How is it possible that David would see God's face? Well, he knew. He's looking forward to the day. The promised Messiah, the promised king whose kingdom would never fail. Friends, the way that we escape the judgment of God is not to run away from God, but to run to God. How do we behold God's face? It's not running in the opposite direction. It's actually turning to him, turning away from sin, turning to God and saying, God, I behold you. I worship you. I love you. I surrender to you. You are my refuge in trial. How can, what do we do in trial? We run and find our refuge in the Lord. What does the Lord do in trial? He does four things. He rules, he tests, he judges, 
and he reveals his glory. I want to leave you with these words from an old hymn. It's an old hymn that I grew up singing. Um, I don't want to embarrass myself by singing it, but I do want to read the first verse in this hymn. It's called, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you pray with me?